What are some of the most important studies over the last 12 months? Nicole knows. She's going to tell us. Welcome to the Critical Care Practitioner Podcast. I'm Anna Rodriguez, and it is May 2019. We are at NTI in Orlando, Florida, where over 8,500 nurses have gathered for the annual AACN National Teaching Institute and Critical Care Exposition. And today, I'm very excited. I'm going to be talking here with Nicole Kupchik. She is here um, as a presenter. Um, she's got several sessions that she's been presenting. And um, we had the privilege of talking to her last year. Um, so I'm very interested to hear a little bit about um, NTIs that have been progressing um, over the years. And, uh, and it, so we'll start with that. Um, Nicole, it's a pleasure to have you. Oh, thanks, Anna. I'm excited to be here. I'm starting to lose my voice a little bit, though. Oh, no. Yeah, that's all right. <laughs> we still have another day and a half of I know. this. <laughs> I what know. are you going to do? Yeah. No, it, it'll be good. I just have to rest it and not talk too much tonight. Perfect. <laughs> so okay. Anyway. Yes, I've got that. Like, yeah, we won't anyway. involve any screaming matches during right. this podcast. Sounds good. So. I will not yell. Don't make me mad, Anna. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway. Perfect. Nicole, okay. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Introduce yourself as far as. Um, uh, what brings you here, your nursing background? Sure. We want to hear that. Yeah. So, well, I've been a nurse for 26 years. I started in the Chicago area. I was a traveling nurse. I'm sure many of you out there um, have maybe uh, worked in different areas or countries or whatever. But um, anyway, uh, ended up in Seattle, Washington, where I later went on to become a clinical nurse specialist. And I worked at a hospital there called Harborview Medical Center, was a CNS for a number of years. And then about six years ago, I just started, I decided to start my own consulting company. And um, so I work now independently. So I stayed per diem at the bedside all the way up until about a year ago. And, um, and now I work independently as a consultant. And then I do a lot of education as well. Um, so I, I feel like I've had the most amazing career. Um, a lot of nurses ask me, like, how did you get there? And I think that one thing I would say to that is just try things and say yes when people ask you if you want to do something at work say yes a few times and I'll tell you it can lead to some pretty amazing experiences I, I love that um, do you feel like are you at the point where you have to say yes selectively though <laughs> well I'm at a point I'm super lucky right I've been in business <laughs> for six years and I'm at a point where I can I can turn away a lot of work right now um, one of the things I'll say is I don't think there's enough nurses doing what I do as an independent mm. clinical nurse specialist or educator um, you know a lot of hospitals especially smaller hospitals have completely cut their education programs and so I get a lot of calls I'm um, mm. just saying we need help we need help with quality improvement or we need help with education. And I'll tell you, I, my, I stay very, very, very busy. I can imagine. I have yeah. talked to nurses who, who say that their hospitals are revamping education mm -hmm. in such extreme ways. Educator roles are being rebranded and the nurse themselves, they're almost having to take initiative and be responsible for their own education it seems like which can be tough right I mean you know it, but you can kind of see where a smaller hospital just can't really afford to keep an entire yeah you know an entire um, department team. and staff mm -hmm. you know for as uh, for education and so a lot of hospitals have maybe like really streamlined their educators to doing hospital orientation and things like that but they don't have specific educators for let's say critical care progressive care the emergency department so I'll tell you it's it's you know for me it's been good because it's kept me busy but I do feel the pain of nurses who are out there and who aren't getting edu you know educated in appropriate ways right so what I love about 
NTI is that this is an opportunity for nurses to come here, educate themselves, uh, bring that information back to their units. And, and what I want to talk to you today about is your session. Um, I got to attend it yesterday, mm. but uh, Critical Care Studies You Should Know About a Year in Review is the title of your yeah. session. Tell us the backstory of how you became the speaker for this session. Yeah, no, it's interesting. So I completely cannot take credit for anything. <laughs> so, so it started years ago. There were a couple, a few nurses who, this, the session used to be called something about sacred cows in, in critical care. And then it evolved. Liz, Dr. Liz Bridges, who's going to be the AACN president-elect, who I love. Yes. Um, but she's, for the last nine years, has, um, it changed it and it really evolved and called it critical care studies you should know about. And then, um, so she's become really active. It's been on the board of directors for AACN and now is going to be the AACN president-elect. And so she's not able to do, to continue to provide right. uh, that lecture. So um, she asked me if I would do it and I will tell you, I feel 100% completely honored to do it. It's, um, I, like I almost, I literally was almost in tears when she asked me. I have literally been going to that session for nine years and just sitting there in awe of like, mm -hmm. this woman is so smart. How can I ever be like her one day right and then when she asked me like initially in my head I was like oh god no I'm not worthy you know <laughs> and then um and then she's like no I really think you can do it I think you're the right person and um you know she was my thesis chair when I got my master's oh, degree at the University of Washington and she's been just such an amazing mentor to me as a clinical nurse specialist that you know I mean how can you say no right and okay. this is what I'm talking about nursing say yes to some things not everything but say yes and you never know where it will lead you yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And, and as somebody who attended last year's session and this one, um, it, it is, I will say, very enjoyable to sit through that session, hear all of the latest information coming out. So what I want to go with, with you through is your top five studies of the past year. What do we need to know as critical care nurses? What has come out that's just like rocking the critical care world yeah well um you know i think one of the studies that really kind of uh i don't want to say blew my mind because i knew it was coming was the iota trial so that was the trial it was a it was a meta-analysis and systematic review um, comparing liberal to conservative oxygen therapies and um, they used a, the spo2 sao2 fio2 as a surrogate marker of hyperoxemia or basically what the um, oxygen level was and we've had this building body of evidence to suggest that oxygen at hyperoxemic levels could be harmful, um, definitely not helpful. And this, what this meta-analysis did was put all 25 randomized control trials together and um, asked the question, is there harm in running patients at liberal SpO2 levels? Mm. So that was defined as a set of 96% or higher versus conservative, which is below 96%. And, you know, come to find out, yeah, there's a mortality difference, which is insane. Because we're like oxygen, no big deal, right? We but, want our patients, yeah, we want them like 98, 100% all the time. Yeah, no, not I so know. much. Yeah, that's not what this study, uh, this meta-analysis uh, revealed to us. Right. And, you know, the European uh, acute coronary syndrome guidelines say avoid oxygen. You know, you just use it if the SATs are less than 90%. Uh, you, I find the U.S. is becoming more and more conservative in medicine. I think Europe is really leading the way. Um, yeah, and we've got Jonathan over here saying, we are the champions, 
right? So, oh, yeah. um, but you know, um, the U.S. guidelines say you know use oxygen if the stats are less than ninety four percent for acute coronary syndrome. But but this meta analysis, I would say a strength and a weakness both of the meta analysis was that it included all types of patients, so sepsis, surgical, MI, acute coronary syndrome, post cardiac mm. arrest. So it really included a, a wide variety of patients. So I think um, you know the one thing I, I always try. I'm like such a jokester and try to make a joke out of everything, right? But I think the one thing to realize is like you're still a real nurse if your patient's not on oxygen, you know. Yes. And just um, you know, just knowing that we you actually could be causing harm with it. It's not benign. You, I always tell nurses think of oxygen like a drug. It has effects on the vasculature. It definitely has cellular effects, and to just not take it so lightly. Such good advice. What, what, what's the situation in in the states as far as um, nurses titrating oxygen? Because um, in in the UK, even though there isn't any specific guideline one way or another. Nurses are sometimes reluctant to turn oxygen down, <laughs> even though the saturations are 98 to 100% because of fear of whatever, I don't know. Yeah. Is that the same in America? Oh, gosh, yeah. You know, one of the things I always say is, you know what nurses are super good at? going up on things you know what we're terrible at coming back down you know it's like and if you come back down there on room air you might have to transfer the patient you know it's like all these things right you know um so yeah i mean we're we're all over the place and one of the things i found from running the sepsis program this was fascinating um so we built so over 10 years ago uh at harborview we had built this kind of machine learning model to identify sepsis and we thought well most sepsis is pneumonia right so let's look at the SpO2s as a marker to ping a nurse. You know, if you've got an S- SpO2 that's falling, ping a nurse to say you've got a patient who's heading the wrong direction. So come to find out, what we found, nurses don't like to chart bad O2 sets. No, do you know what nurses no, do? Nurses will titrate the oxygen but continue to chart normal O2 sets. Fascinating. Super fascinating. Um, you know, so I, anyway, I just, you know, again, I think we're way too conservative on coming down on things, uh, just about everything, but especially oxygen. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Fascinating. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. What it's else? like what it are... validates that we are a nurse if they're on oxygen. <laughs> Mona, IV we can't get oxygen. rid of it, can we? <laughs> oh, and I always say, so help me God, if you're teaching Mona, just stop and go to the library, right? You know, so anyway, nice. you've got to update your practice. <laughs> so. Perfect. Okay. What What else do we have? Uh, that's, uh, that's the... What was it, the Loda trial? Yeah, IOTA. IOTA. So that was the IOTA it's trial. So IOTA. I think, you know, one of my, I'll just say this is so personal, is delirium. Delirium, I, yes. Yes, I'm always, just just know, if I'm a granny giving this talk at NTI, I'll be like 80 years old giving this talk, right? I will always include something on delirium. It is just so near and dear to my heart. Um, so a couple things uh, I presented yesterday. Uh, another big bust on antipsychotics, which, you know, no big, mm. a big surprise there, but, um, but there was a, the Mind USA trial that, um, had assessed the idea of using, um, antipsychotics like Haldol, uh, Giodon to, um, to treat delirium. They were using big doses as well, weren't they? Well, it was up to 20 milligrams on the Haldol and 40 milligrams on the Giodon, which I don't know, like 20 milligrams of Is Haldol. Is that a daily dose though? We were doing daily. that for a few days? For daily, yeah. So wow. up to 20 milligrams daily. In a 24-hour period. In a 24-hour period, yeah. Mm. Um, so, but the, 
interesting thing was was they they gave these antipsychotics to patients who had both either hypo or hyperactive delirium. And in general, clinically, we don't use antipsychotics for hypoactive. We get them out of bed, put their glasses on them, get their hearing aids in, ask all the girlfriends to come in and, and just clap and sit still. with granny. Yeah, yeah you know, <laughs> we, you have to engage the person who's got hypoactive delirium, which is the most common type of delirium. So for hyperactive, though, I mean, the thing we worry about is patients causing harm to themselves, mm. right? And so um, it didn't seem to, again, it's just building to the body of evidence that antipsychotics just really don't seem to be helping uh, patients who have hyperactive delirium. What's the answer? I don't know. I really don't know what the answer is uh, for hyperactive delirium. I would love to see um, dexmedetomidine study specifically in hyperactive delirium to see if that helps. Hmm. Um, but truly, if you take a step back, should the bigger focus be on preventing delirium? Yes, that should be the biggest focus. And I just find in the U.S., maybe I find the U.K. to be a bit more progressive. But in the U.S., we're so reactionary. We focus all of our efforts on treating disease states Mm. versus preventing disease states. I think we're still a little bit guilty of that in the U.K. as well. sometimes. Sometimes you're so busy caring for the patient's many other needs that actually caring for their delirium state before it happens is not a priority that it should be you know you know we don't how many of us tiptoe around the unit in the middle of the night john Mm. how many of us tiptoe in the unit in the middle of the night not making any noise keeping really quiet not shouting down coffee or you know exchange it just doesn't happen does it you know as much as we would like it to there's a lot of units now in the uk they're having these wall display things that tell you to shh as soon as it goes above certain decibels. Oh, I like that. Yeah, yeah. it works in the first week. Everyone yeah, ignores, everybody it, ignores after it. That. <laughs> yeah, yeah, everyone it's ignores like, it. It's like, yeah, alarm fatigue, yeah. right? Yes. Yeah. Although there is a study just come out, and I'm going to have a chat with her about it, um, where uh, they they did a bit of a meta-analysis on that, and actually it was proven to be making some difference. So okay. I don't know. The study I wanted to talk to you about was TTM. Oh, let's chat. Because yes. that I thought was a really interesting discussion because yeah. I was one of the ones that stuck my hand up and said 36. Okay. And yet it seems from what you were saying that actually we should be going lower still because being happy with 36 often means that our patient gets too warm. Is that fair yeah so okay so i think there's a few issues like how far back do you want me to back up (laughs) with this because i think there needs to be some foundational information provided here okay so I'll, i'll just back up a tiny bit all right so first of all we know that 32 to 34 degrees compared to doing nothing we know that works yeah okay that's that's been proven that's two studies 2002 all right then 2013 dr nielsen and his group published a study comparing 33 degrees to 36 degrees and it was a superiority trial and the really the question was is 36 better than 33 and the answer was no it was, were the results equivocal the answer was yes okay so then a lot of people People were like, oh, 36 is just as good. Let's do 36. The problem I think that's happening now is that I don't think compliance with 36 degrees is very good. Yeah. And that's what I, so yesterday I prevented, I presented two studies and now just remember these were low quality studies, right? Mm-hmm. They were before and after one was from a registry. Um, one was experiential in a hospital or um, a system in Australia. Um, the other one was from the New Zealand, Australia registry. And what they're finding is that a lot, a lot of these hospitals that have gone to 36 degrees is that the compliance isn't good and mortality is going up 
up and these patients are getting febrile. So I think the problem is people just aren't taking it serious. They're like, ah, 36, no big deal. And that a, a lot of EDs aren't even implementing the therapy anymore. Whereas 33, or 32 to 34 degrees, that's that's a very active intervention, right? Mm-hmm. You've got to take a patient from a lot of times what would be normal down quite a few degrees. And and it's a it's a huge intervention. Whereas 36 is like, yeah, you know, they're about there just as a baseline. So we're not going to do anything. And then lo and behold, they get to the ICU and they're febrile. Mm. And I think honestly, I, I would say I'm not sure. Is the issue that 32 to 34 is better than 36? I can't really say that. Is there probably a big issue with compliance? Yes. Mm-hmm. I do think there's an issue with compliance at 36 degrees. Um, I don't know. You know, it's it's really hard to say what the issue is, if it's compliance or if it was actually the, tar- the, temp- the target of the temperature. I don't know what to say, Jonathan. This is interesting. And I'll tell you, there's another big paper that just got accepted for publication from a hospital in Seattle. Stay tuned. I can't say anything yet, but stay tuned. It's just going, I'm just, I'll just, I can say that it'll build to poor compliance with 36 and worse outcomes. Okay. Interesting. So what are you going to do by your patient's bedside at the moment? Well, the hospital I came from went back to 33. I didn't ask you that. Oh, what am I going to do? Yeah. I, I would, if, if it were me, let's just make it more personal. Yeah. You want to up the ante? Yeah, absolutely. If it were me having a cardiac it's arrest? It's your hospital, your own personal hospital. Uh, no, I, let's make it me. Okay, I have in you. the bed. I'm the one You've who arrested. dropped dead. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. All right. 33. 33. Okay. Give me 33. Nicole okay. and all I, the experts want 33. Yeah. I hate being cold, right? <laughs> but save the noggin, man. If I'm a goofball after I have a cardiac arrest, I really don't want to be on this planet no. anymore, right? There are worse things than death. Yeah. So I don't know. I want it to be neurologically intact. Do 33 on me. Okay. There one more study. It's your turn. Oh, <laughs> okay. Well, so the one all the nurses are talking about, the SCD study. Yes, let's talk about that. So the sequential compression device, the squeezers on the legs. What do you call them in the UK? Oh, the Flotrons. Flotrons. I yeah, they, they just go around and they... Squeezers, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Flotrons. Yeah, so okay. this was interesting. Um so here's the way this, he's like, he's, just so you guys know, he's scowling at me. But, uh, but anyway, <laughs> so, so what this was, that was this is uh, the idea that if you've got a patient who's on pharmacological DVT prophylaxis, so let's say you've got on heparin, low molecular weight heparin, Lovenox, whatever, okay? So you've got all these patients that are on pharmacological DVT prophylaxis. Does the addition of an SCD help prevent DVTs? And the study found no. Thank God. No, but let me tell you, I'm just going to be honest. I was already encountered by a company today who's really upset, who makes SCDs, saying that it wasn't our SCD in the study. And I'm just like, oh, for Christ's sake. Because their SCD would have made a difference. Totally. Yeah, right. You know, so anyway, whatever, (laughs) dudes. Uh, But, um, you know, interesting. Uh, You know, is there still a role for SCDs? Yes, absolutely. Um, If you cannot provide pharmacologic DVT prophylaxis, I'd say the orthopedic patient population Mm. for sure. You know, so I do still think there's a role for SCDs, but in the group that was studied, which were critically ill patients who were on pharmacologic DVT prophylaxis, the data didn't show that the sequential compression devices were, gave any added benefit. So I know it was, I, I, I swear there were cheers around the room when I showed the I results. I can just imagine. Yeah, there were people were doing backflips. They're like, yeah. All of that guilt. 
on the nurse's shoulders thinking, oh, the time I forgot to put the STDs yeah. back on my patient. Well, so so the interesting thing about this study is um, that was one of the things you have to look at is compliance with the sequential compression devices. Mm-hmm. So they were on a median of 22 hours. So I'm like, I don't know any ICU patient that's got them on that often. You know, so that, that actually have really good compliance with it. Dang. So, yeah. So I, I think just interesting results. Yeah. That is all so fascinating. Yeah. Um, just one question: Do you what do you anticipate in the next coming year? Any predictions with? Oh yes. Yeah. So this? sepsis is like hot. I mean sepsis is always so hot, right? Okay. So I cannot wait to see what the vitamin C trials show. I'm super excited. So a couple of them are due to wrap up this fall. Excellent. Um, there's been a brand new study on thiamine that was retrospective, showed better lactate clearance, um, showed lower mortality. Um, now that was retrospective in nature. So that should hopefully generate a randomized control trial. Um, the, I, the vitamin C, I, I cannot wait to see what this stuff shows. I don't think it's going to show the magnitude of um, improvement that Paul Merrick's before and after study showed. But I'm super excited about that. The other thing is the idea of early norepinephrine and septic shock versus waiting. Um, the, so a small trial of 300 patients demonstrated that early initiation within the first 90 minutes of norepinephrine uh, had better outcomes than and shock resolution than mm-hmm. starting it later. Um, the other study I'm super excited about is okay. Wait, I'm just hold on, I'm blanking on everything right now. Oh, oh, the fresh trial. So this is the idea in sepsis of putting a stroke, a non-invasive stroke volume measure on a patient and using that to guide fluid resuscitation versus usual care, which means I'm looking at your heart rate, your vital signs, your lactate, and guessing if you need fluid. So that study wrapped up and hopefully, and not hopefully, it will be published in, by the next NTI. So I'm super excited about that. Non-invasive well. stroke volume. So what are they using? They use the uh, bioreactance cheetah device. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, and then and, the, and this is on ITU patients or uh, just sick patients? Uh, septic, septic patients. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And then the other, um, the other big study uh, is it's I think it's called the ICU Rocks study R O X I think. But anyway, it's it's looking at liberal versus conservative oxygen therapy in mechanically ventilated patients. Mm-hmm. So that's a very specific, yeah. So mm-hmm. super specific. And then the other one is the pedal network, who's now they kind of taken over from the ARDSnet, uh, the ARDS network. Um, the pedal network is looking at. Um, conservative versus liberal fluid management in uh, patients with sepsis and ARD. So I'm th- super excited to see what a lot of these trials show. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. I can mention one more as well. Oh, it's yeah, let's hear it. The stress L trial that's going okay. on. So beta blockers um, in septic patients. Oh, sure. Um, and it's really interesting. We had a patient on uh, this drug uh, a couple of weeks ago, and the heart rate did indeed come down as it was designed to do. And actually, the patient turned around quite quickly. Now, it's one patient. It could pure coincidence but it was really interesting the way it happened so it's going to be interesting to see that one as well I think yeah okay I'll I'll have to kind of mark that one down make sure I keep my eyes and ears for it I'll let you know stress L I hadn't heard of that one okay it's a good one all right Excellent. I'm excited though. Right? I'm excited. Just talking okay. to you makes me excited about all this. So who knew we could find journals and studies so fascinating? Well, but it impacts our practice, right? Exactly. So that's you, that's why. Yes, you do such a good job taking all of that material, breaking it down, getting all of the good stuff to us here at NTI. So thank you so much. Of course. And thank you for coming on the podcast today. Um, just to wrap up, again, we're here, um, Orlando, Florida, AACN's NTI. We, uh, we've been going since um, 1974 with NTIs. So You've been going uh, since 1974? Not me. <laughs> 
joking. I'm part I'm of totally the organization. Joking. No, uh, no. So this is this is I the fiftieth anniversary of this the organization. Yeah. yeah. So this is a, this is a big event here, um, and it's awesome. That is to awesome. Be here. Awesome. So thank you, thank you again for being on here. Um, we'll wrap up and. Um, any last questions from John? No, thanks, Good. Nicole. Right. Again, Thank you so much. Guys. Nice, nice to do it face-to-face this time as well. You've been listening to Critical Care Practitioner. If you would like to comment on any of today's topics, find us at criticalcarepractitioner.co.uk, tweet us at ccpractitioner, find us at facebook.com slash criticalcarepractitioner, or search Critical Care Practitioner on iTunes. <laughs>